Hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. I am the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Michael Acolin, and on behalf of Sam Maxwell, welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. Sam is unable to join us today, but he sends his holiday wishes and hopes you are all being safe and staying healthy out there in these treacherous times. I hope to be joined shortly by our guest this afternoon, Mr. Phil Dixon, hailing from Kansas City, Missouri. He's a historian, author, and speaker, and an authority on Negro League Baseball, and that's what our discussion was to be about today. So in the meantime, obviously people know of the news that Major League Baseball has decided to reclassify the Negro Leagues as Major League. Uh, that needs clarification. Which leagues are they talking about? Because there were various leagues. Uh, and to my understanding, they are incorporating the statistics from seven leagues, starting in 1920 with the original founding of the Negro National League by Mr. Rube Foster. That league was founded in 1920 and existed through 1931. Uh, shortly after the foundation of the Negro National League, three years later, a gentleman by name of uh, Nat Strong and a couple of other associates here in the East, they formed a, a league, the Eastern Colored League, which began play in 1923 through 1928. And for those seasons that the, that the leagues coexisted, they competed, partly the statistics that will be placed into the baseball historical record. Uh, just bear with me while I switch back and forth between screens. I'm on the lookout for our guests. After the Eastern Colored League comes the American Negro League. Now, this league only played for one season. They were formed uh, with teams from the Eastern Colored League. Uh, but again, they only lasted one season after which in 1932, uh, the East-West League formed, uh, and they did not complete a full season. The next league in question would be the Negro Southern League. And like the Negro National League, formed in 1920. However, it was formed as a minor league. But there came a point after the original National Negro National League folded that they were elevated to the status of major league. Otherwise, they played the majority of their seasons and existence as a minor league circuit. So I'm still unsure, uncertain as to how the Negro Southern League statistics will be incorporated into the baseball record. Uh, after which we have two more circuits the Negro National League II, uh, the reincarnation of the original National League, after which we have not to be confused with the American Negro League. Now, lastly, we have the Negro American League. Uh, and this is a curious instance where the league was formed in 1937. Major League Baseball has said they're going to incorporate records up until and through 1948. Meanwhile, the Negro American League continued to exist and operate and play games uh, well beyond 1948 through the 50s and up to, give or take, 1960. But these are the seven leagues in question. Uh, perhaps that's the wrong way of phrasing it. These are the seven leagues that the people in Major League Baseball decided that these leagues, these statistics will be incorporated into the record. Uh, allow me, with further ado, let me introduce today's guest. He's a historian, author, speaker. You can find him on Twitter, at Negro League Man, Mr. Phil Dixon. Welcome back. It's a pleasure speaking with you again, sir. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Uh, a little bit low, but I'll do. Uh, I'll make do. Uh, unfortunately, Sam could not join us this afternoon, so it's just you and I, All sir. Right. And uh, 
I hope to have a, uh, a very detailed and lively discussion with you. I started off, you know, I figure we define what it is that Major League Baseball is doing insofar as recognizing the various Negro Leagues as Major League and incorporating the statistics into the baseball record. Before we go there, sir, I would like to know you from you personally, uh, because my hope is that folks understand and grasp the, the magnitude of this event. Obviously, 2020 was a very uh, socially expressive year. Uh, so what was your initial reaction? My initial reaction was uh, one of probably suspense. And I would say suspense because I'm not sure what this means and knowing what I know about the Negro Leagues after 40 years of researching it, I had lots of questions. And at the same time, I knew that it doesn't affect the overall, you know, leaders. So Babe Ruth is still, you know, going to be where he is. And, and, you know, even though Josh Gibson's in there and Satchel Page is going to still be where he is, you know, he won't be anywhere near like a Grover Cleveland or a Christy Matheson and total wins. But uh, I started to wonder about things like percentages, like winning percentages and home run percentages. And I can see if they merge those records that those are definitely going to be affected. But uh, Satchel Page, if you go by the numbers now, now I've, I've been informed that they're going to drop the numbers from Steamhead's website. And if you drop the numbers in from Steam Web, Steamhead's website, Satchel Page has less than 150 victories in Steamhead's for his entire career. And so uh, that's going to make Satchel Page look pretty me- mediocre in the lifetime statistics, uh, pretty much like it was before when he came in the big leagues, uh, just pitching a couple of years for Cleveland and, uh, and the St. Louis Browns. So, yeah, I, I had lots of questions, and there wasn't much information that came with the media release. They did say the leagues. That, and I, I, can I clarify one more thing, though? I was, yeah, I was by all means. Before I, yeah, I was listening before I came on, and there was kind of, you know, you guys were talking about the Negro Southern League. Well, the Negro Southern League that organized in 1920 is not the one that they're talking about. Uh, the Negro, they called it the Negro Southern League, and Gus Greenlee was behind that league, uh, the one that they're going to uh, actually use the statistics from. And uh, so it just had a few teams like the Monroe Monarchs, and they were part of it. But that one was basically originated out of the East. And uh, so that's not the Negro uh, Southern League that was organized in 1920. Completely, completely different thing. So yeah. So and I, they, I, I and there you go. That's why. That. And that's why I am not the host. You are the lead, and I'm merely here to facilitate facilitate conversation with you, sir. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, you relieved a lot of apprehension on my part. Uh, I believe I'm in lockstep with you because the thousands of thought bubbles exploded over my head as to the how and, and, and unfortunately what's going to be excluded, uh, namely pre-1920s baseball. I, I, I think before we go there, because there are a lot of questions and a lot of things that need to be hashed out, I think before we go there, you know, let's spend a quick moment the year is coming to an end. Let's revisit. This is, after all, the 100th anniversary of the ne- uh, establishment of the original Na- Negro National League by Ruth Foster. Uh, I think that deserves another mention. And uh, something that I had on the tip of my tongue that fails me now. But, uh, again, let, let's just revisit that for a second before the year closes. Uh, unfortunately, it was, it was a year... Uh, with the pandemic and, and that may have uh, subdued the celebration somewhat. Any regrets over that? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't, um, you know, I know the Negro league baseball museum, they had a lot of events that uh, were canceled and, you know, I'm, I lost some speaking engagements, but at the same time I was able to launch my website and, and still, you know, pretty much communicate with people online. You know, I did a number of zoom broadcast hey and i got to spend some time with you at least twice right so yes sir it was yeah it wasn't a bad year but you know it wasn't the year that was planned out i think you know everybody was 
wanting to be able to talk about it, but uh, in person and have, you know, a lot of events. But it turned out to be a, a quite interesting year um, in that uh, Major League Baseball this year, um, you know, they take they took Kennesaw Mountains and Landis name off the MVP award. And, uh, and I think a lot of this is the response to uh, the movements that are going on in the country uh, regarding um, uh, minority peoples and, and, and the sensitivity that uh, they have. You know, it's in football with the, you know, uh, with the uh, Washington team dropping their name. It's in baseball, of course, with the uh, Cleveland team uh, looking at their historic name. Uh, also in boxing, uh, uh, we had uh, our president uh, pardon Jack Johnson. So it's been an interesting year, <laughs> needless to say. But um, <clears throat> the thing with the baseball, and once again, baseball being uh, the historic baseball being a stats-driven industry, I think that maybe Major League Baseball might have bit off more than they can chew. And this is pretty momentous stuff, and that's why I I, I hope that people fully grasp this, uh, the recognition, the acknowledgement, finally. Uh, pride and satisfaction in the game. And I, I won't say the Negro, I will say the industry that they created from the ground up, and this is a little bit of my apprehension, some of their history, I feel, in the same vein that when Jackie Robinson came along and desegregation of major leagues came along, and that ultimately led to the decline of the Negro Leagues, I feel unless Major League Baseball intensifies its effort to promote and expand the greater narrative of the Negro Leagues and the Negro League game, going back as far as they can, that revealing and incorporating these stats and let, letting them sit as they, as they will, uh, I think... Is a little bit underserving, for lack of a better you, you know, word. So, yeah, oh yeah, you, you know, you're, you're making uh, uh, some really good comments. Let, let me tell you, uh, and probably because I've sat with this topic for at least 35 years of the 40 some odd years I've been uh, doing uh, Negro League history uh, related to the uh, Negro Leagues, and uh, even going back. The 30-some-odd years, some of the conversations that I had with John Hallway, who was the first out of the gate to try to put this kind of history together. And here's some of the problems that they're not telling you, the public. Well, first of all, say if you take uh, – I did, I did a work on the 31 Homestead Grays. I went through and found 142 box scores of their historic season. And I wrote a book called uh, Phil Dixon's American Baseball Chronicles, the 1931 Homestead Grays. And in doing that work, uh, box scores coming from the Pittsburgh Courier, I think I had less than 20 box scores. Most of the box scores came from the Post-Gazette, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and, um, and I think it was the Sun-Times, if I'm correct. But those, those, those uh, box scores didn't use at-bats. So you have... You know, you can see, you know, maybe how many, how many innings the pitcher pitched, not always. And so the pitching could be off. But none of the at-bats. So I'm missing all of these at-bats. So when I did my book, I never tried to compile an average because I would have to guess. Well, Hallway was guessing on at-bats 30 years ago and creating these lifetime batting averages, and no one ever combated him until I came along. I'm a young guy in my 20s. I say, how do you figure that? And he said, well, you know, I basically said it's a guesstimation. That's the same thing that you're going to face in this, but the public doesn't know that. And I feel that if Major League Baseball, this is, okay, this is a fine first step, but if they don't expand the narrative to include games against minors, semi-pro circuits, college teams, the textile league, state leagues, again, I, I, I think the narrative remains incomplete. If they let the statistics sit and have people observe them as they are, 
I, I would hate for, say, let's take it out of our lifetime. You know, I never saw Babe Ruth play, neither did you. All we do is read his stats, and, and, and we debate as baseball fans. What's going to happen 40 right. years down the line when somebody peruses the stats and they come across, say, pick a player who bled from pre-1920 into the 20s? You understand? That record is going to be You're incomplete. Right. And we can name we can name a, a, a myriad of players. I mean, Rube Foster, for instance, he played the majority of his career pre nineteen twenty. That's not going to be entered in the statistical record. And unless Major League Baseball intensifies and 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 tries to encompass the entirety of this narrative, I think it might be somewhat of an injustice, uh, not not intentionally. But I think they need to be cognizant, and I think they need to be aware that they're only scratching the surface. Do you agree? Uh, I totally agree. Uh, I will give you another example. I released a book called um, uh, The 1905 Philadelphia Giants, right? And in that book, of course, Rube Foster was a member of that team. Uh, Rube Foster and two other pitchers, Dan McClellan and Emmett Bowman, they all won over 30 games. Now, here's the, here's the problem, once again, with the statistics. And you can go to the various sources online and look. They won't show Rube Foster winning 30 games because they only count the games that he played against other black teams. So if, if they're playing like uh, maybe uh, the New York uh, Cuban X Giants and, and they could play a series and they will draw maybe, uh, say, say 5,000 people for a game. But if they can go down the road outside and maybe they can play the Trenton YMCA team that's stacked with big leaguers, ex-big leaguers, ex-minor leaguers, guys coming up and that kind of thing, and they draw 10,000 people, who do you think they're going to play? Right. So, so it becomes so, – so these statistics don't tell the complete story. They don't talk about the economics – they don't talk about the disparity, why one team may play 50 games and another game team may play 25 league games. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't do that at all. They're only taking the games uh, that they played against other black teams. And the reason I know this is because I look at Steam here statistics all the time, and I can tell you that's all they include, and they are missing quite a few uh, games from even that experience. So, yeah, it's uh, – it's going to be interesting, and I don't know uh, how many historians were consulted. I talked to a guy at the Saber, and uh, he says that uh, they were caught totally blind by this. They only knew that Major League Baseball was considering the, uh, the movement to uh, make uh, Negro Leaguers Major Leaguers. Uh, but they were caught completely blindsided. So a lot of these discussions that are going to be had going to be like people like yourself, and they're going to be after the fact, like what we're doing now. Well, it's about time. I'm not going to let MLB off the hook. And I'm going to paraphrase double duty, Ratcliffe, when I bring up Jackie Robinson. You know, uh, and this is from the Black Diamonds interviews. Okay. And uh, he says, uh, you know, think about when Jackie was, was signed. When did the first black manager come along? 1974. That's almost 30 years later. Where are the general managers? Where are the owners? Which And his point was, you know, where is the progression? It's too slow. And here we are in 2020 and Major League Baseball uh, offers this gesture, a good gesture, like we say, a good first step. Too late. I think we just need to stick that dagger in there and twist it just a little bit to remind everyone that this was, this was not an easy endeavor. And like you know, I say, this is more than just baseball leagues. This was an industry created from the ground up and, and started with nothing and look what it is and, and how we lend so much acclaim to it today. Right. And, and, and there's still so much to learn. Uh, but by giving a fraction of the picture with no explanation, 
is not going to teach people very much. And I know even talking to John Hallway years ago, I said, here's a better way to do it. And so I produced these two books, and, uh, and it was the better way to do it because it told their whole season. So, for instance, when I did the Homestead Grays book, I showed Josh Gibson is having 40 home runs for the season. Not only did I tell you he had 40 home runs, I showed you the date he hit them, if it was a black team or a white team, what city he hit them in. And so now you can look at this and begin to extract your own information. And instead, what Steamheads did, they went in and extract the black teams. And they didn't, they didn't take all the black teams, which is a mystery to me. So they made the decision who they thought were, um, I guess, you know, worthy of a league. Because there was, first of all, there's no league in 1931 that the home straight grades were a part of, right? Which, which leads me to the 1932 East-West League. The East-West League, if you ever have done research in the East-West League, it was, it was a bad ideal in a bad year. And, and the reason for that is because it was in the Depression and there was no money. And so people like James Coupapa Bell, Willie Wells, uh, they ended up on, I think they were on the Detroit team, then they were on the Homestead Grays team, and then when they missed a few paychecks back there, they jumped to J.L. Wilkinson's team, which is the Kansas City Monarchs, and they barnstormed for the rest of the year. So they got there, in, I think, in June. So anything from June on, for those guys, uh, two Hall of Famers won't even appear in those statistics. So exactly. you tell me how that's showing a complete picture. Exactly. Uh, Phil, excuse my nervousness. I've been looking forward to this okay. this discussion as soon as <laughs> Sam announced it. Please take a, okay. take a moment out. Tell us what you're doing. I know yesterday was a busy day. You've had a busy month. Like you said, you wrote a couple of books. Take some time out. Tell us everything you're doing and uh, where we can find it. Well, uh, my latest book, uh, The Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, uh, is, is a book, uh, and, and of course the subtitle is Race Media and America's National Pastime, so I'm evaluating all three of those elements and introducing some of the best baseball that was being played outside the major leagues. Of course, those games won't appear in these statistics, but uh, those are the kind of projects I've been working on, uh, doing some things with an oral history and just making the best out of this year, but uh, you know, I'm still trying to tell the story uh, in, in any way that I can uh, to, to bring more clarification and, and to introduce the public to a lot of these people. And it looks like now I'm going to have to have the challenge of trying to tell people, here's a better way to introduce, you know, their game in a statistical way than what you've been seeing. And, of course, I've been believing that for 30-some-odd 30, 30 years, ever since uh, John Harway and I talked years ago. So I've been keeping busy uh, with, with a lot of writing, and uh, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm doing a revision on a book I had about Buck O'Neill, the 1938 season, and uh, uh, it's just been it's just been good. It's uh, a lot of projects going on, but it's, it's baseball every day from um, I'm going to say from uh, from January one to December 31st. I'm thinking about baseball every day, and uh, I might mention uh, for the last two years, didn't get a chance to do much this year, of course, with the pandemic. I coached uh, high school baseball as well. Congratulations, uh, and I admire everyone who does that. I coached Little League Baseball for 10 years. Uh, we need volunteers. Right. We need people out there. We need young kids, uh, you know, the right way, especially through baseball. Uh too many times people say life imitates baseball, baseball imitates life. So it's a great endeavor. Congratulations to you. Uh, what do you say we take it to the top? Let's. What do you say we take it from the top? Let's identify uh, who exactly is going to be incorporated in, in, into this uh, movement going forward. We start, you know, I started out and uh, I need an education as well. We'll start with the Negro National League formed in 1920 by Rube Foster and the Eastern Colored League formed in 1923 uh, by a couple of people. Uh, Nat Strong was one of them. Owner of the Philadelphia Giants was another one, and that was a contentious relationship. It's odd how they came together. Uh, but the American Negro League of 1929, give me some education on that. 
see the American Negro. Okay, now they had the the one in the East. So uh, the Eastern Color League went belly up. I think it's about 1928. So mm-hmm. um, if I'm correct, I think Baltimore won the championship in that particular league that year. It was, and this is that's another thing that kind of confuses people. You have the first Negro National League in the West that starts in 1920. Gets off to a you know great great start. Teams are playing five game series. Um, you know they're not playing as many barnstorming games. Five game series well attended, but you generally that last game that was played on Tuesdays wasn't well attended. So when they come out in 1921. With the four game series, so they come to a city and play four games, and and so it left the schedule open for more barnstorming, and 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 all of these towns had such great barnstorming uh, teams that they could barnstorm against, and they had stadiums that they could play in, and they could get you know great return on their money. That barnstorming is always an aspect, you know, for all of these teams. So, but Ruth Foster's league up through about 1925, 26, uh, you're going to see a lot of games in in these ball players' uh, statistics, right? When you get to the 30s, the depression, uh, league not being as stable. Now you're going to start to see less ball games in their lifetime statistics. But you got a lot of players who came through the Negro National League, so you're going to be introduced to a lot of names. And uh, I think that's exciting because I know when I first started, people talked about Crew Papa Bell and, of course, the Satchel Page, Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston. But, you know, they never talked about a Larry Brown or a Frank Duncan or a Newt Allen or a Chet Brewer. Those guys were, you know, in most people's minds, they would say, hey, people would come up to me, they said, hey, it's too bad uh, Satchel Page couldn't pitch in the major leagues. And I'll say, hey, what about the other eight guys on the team? They were pretty good, too. <laughs> so, right. But, but, but that was the mood. The mood was they only talked about a few people. And so I tried to enlarge that conversation and had some success in doing that. But, you know, I've seen so many changes. But this is probably uh, the change that's going to catch more people's attention than anything that's probably ever been done. Now, here's an interesting aspect to this. Uh, we'll round out with the Negro National League Two, the second incorporation. And, you know, they managed to uh, survive through the Depression, and they existed through 1948. But that's where MLB stops. But the Negro Leagues doesn't stop there. They're still in a, a Negro American League. You know, and I, I just recently wrote about Roy Campanella's team that he sponsored, the Brooklyn Stars. And he promoted a bunch of doubleheaders at Ebbets Field in 1959 against the American Negro League. And, again, these are games and statistics that will not be entered into the record. Yeah, that is correct. And, you know, why did, why did they stop in 1948? That I don't know. And, of course, you, as you well know, uh, they're trying to go with what they call leagues. So they're saying the Negro National League in 1920. But, you know, black baseball teams were playing independently prior to uh, 1920 as well. But it's going to be a lot left out. And so, you know, I, don't, I just don't think you're going to get a, as complete a story as uh, people want with the, with the way that they're going to roll this out. I just, I just feel like there's a lot of things to be desired. But there's a lot of conversation to be had because all the questions you ask are legitimate. But we don't know the answers. It, it would be a shame also, to me. Go, go right ahead, sir. No, I was going to say, we also don't know who's making the decisions. Right. Uh, and that said, you know, to me, it would be a shame. It took an army. It took an army of amateur and professional historians, researchers, authorities like you to really recover, not uncover, but recover much of what we know today. And I hope that MLB is cognizant enough to understand that they've only scratched the surface. Right. Boy, you see, that's another good point. It took a lot of work to get it to this point. And, you know, um, with all the work that was done, 
you know, it's kind of you kind of wonder, does this subtract from it or does it add to it? And and I think the verdict is still out there. Uh, and that remains to be seen. I, I'm very interested <laughs> to see how this plays out. Yeah. And, you know, if you uh, follow baseball, you know, like you have, you know, uh, these numbers, I know even when I was a kid, you know, man, I, I knew Grover Cleveland had 373 wins and 90 shutouts. You just kind of – kind of uh, history that you would just get the books and then you're trying to study up on it and it'd be on the back of baseball cards and those kind of things. And, and this is how we learned our baseball and our numbers so we could talk with other kids and, uh, and older people and show them how much we knew. Well, a lot of that may change, but I don't know how much because I'm not sure how they're going to handle it. Yeah, let's give them something to handle, Phil. Let's talk about the Cuban Giants <laughs> and the Cuban ex-Giants. How about that? All right. <laughs> yeah, and look, uh, the Cuban the Cuban Giants that were in the league, uh, I guess they would make it. They were in the Eastern Color League, and then they had a Cuban uh, Cuban Stars team in the Negro National League started in 1920, and the Eastern Color League when they organized in what 1923. But but the thing is, uh, the teams before, like the Cuban ex Giants, you know, I don't know how they're going to address those statistics. Uh, moving forward because they're going to be left out of the history books with the current movement that they have now, even though they were professional ballplayers as well. Yes. So what I did this summer is I major leagues. And what I did this summer is I took a drive out to uh, Babylon over here, Long Island. And they uh, recently, I would say maybe, I actually forgot. Let's just call it 10 years ago or so. They put a plaque. They erected a plaque over at the site of the old Argyle Hotel, where supposedly yes. the Cuban Giants were formed in 1885. And they are noted as the first professional black baseball team. So says the plaque. My, my question to you before we get into the Cuban Giants and the ex-Giants, uh, is this claim true? There were other teams around, but... Are the Cuban Giants indeed the first professional black baseball team? Absolutely not. That distinction is held by the St. Louis team out of St. Louis. I think they were called the Brown Stockings. And uh, they were about three years ahead now uh, of the uh, formation of their at the Argyle Hotel when those guys were working as waiters there. And then after the season, they continued going. Uh, but uh, that is the history that Saul Weitz wrote in his book that came out in 1905 in there. So that is the history that people were talking about. But uh, once again, all of this great research has proved that the team out of St. Louis uh, was making the claim that they were professional several years before. Continuing this Cuban ex, and I'm going to follow the Cuban ex giants path as opposed to the Cuban giants, if you'll allow me, uh, because okay. I, I like the I like the confrontations between uh, not necessarily the clubs but the managers and the owners and, and the promoters themselves. And mm-hmm. there came a time in the Cuban giant Cuban giants history where John Bright purchased the team, and the players didn't like him. Uh, I know I'm I don't have to tell you that. And eventually, right. by 1896, <laughs> yeah, they didn't like them. Uh, scrupulous business practices, and a bunch of players defected in 1896 and formed the Cuban ex-Giants. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, here's where I want you to play the role of Chicago. I'll play the role here locally of New York. The Cuban okay. ex-Giants hire as their manager Edward Lamar, a white guy from Brooklyn, and that's where I come in, because mm-hmm. if it's Brooklyn, I'm on it. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Having fun with this. So right away, he forms up a relationship with the Cuban, uh, excuse me, the Chicago unions. And they start off with a very successful barnstorming relationship together uh, for a couple of years. Two points. They're barnstorming through Illinois, Indiana, I think uh, uh, Wisconsin. Very profitable for them. But what these two teams spearhead is the cooperative system. And, again, I, that's why I call this an, in, an industry formed from the ground up. Uh, as far as the Cuban ex-giants, uh, Clarence Williams, 
let's call him the real leader of the team. These guys are all business okay. savvy, right? And they and and That's the, right. I, I think the Chicago Unions uh, were the lead in this, and and the Cuban ex Giants picked up on their lead and and established the cooperative system where all revenues were brought in and they would pay for their overhead and expenses and the rest of the profits would be shared equally amongst players and the manager. And these two teams spearheaded that and had that barnstorming relationship. Uh, And we're talking the very end years of the 1800s entering 1900. How do you like that relationship? Because these guys are are groundbreakers, are they not? Yeah, that, you know, boy, that's, you raised so many things went to my head when you were talking about it because I know in in Chicago the Union Giants that was Peters Peters and Frank Leland they ran that team uh, out of Chicago they were partners and of course later on um, I think uh, Frank Leland broke off and in 1902 he brings Ruth Foster out of the South to pitch for his team so they had. They had the Chicago uh, Giants and the Chicago Union Giants. Okay, so they had two teams, very similar names. Uh, and so Ruth Foster comes and pitch for the Union Giants. And so in 1903, the, uh, and a gentleman by the name of Grant Home Run Johnson, they were all out west. And so what happened was between Lamar and, and uh, Frank Leland and Peters, Ball players begin to jump back and forth because they 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 would take the best ball players and offer them more money. Then they would go east. So you have a lot of ball players in after 1903 to maybe 1907 jumping from the western teams, and so baseball booms in the east, and then baseball died in the west. But then baseball boomed again in the West, and then baseball died in the East. And what you're seeing is the original formation of the East-West game that started in 1933. It actually started at the turn of the century with all the players, players. And I mean, you know, like like Ed Lamar and, and and Bright, you know, these owners. All of that started at the turn of the century, and with all the things that these teams are doing. Exactly. And it's funny that the, we'll have to call them the genuine Cuban Giants now and the ex-Giants, they don't play for the first two years. They have a contentious relationship. And that's the part that really amuses me. I love the rivalries and how they resolve them. And ultimately they play a series. I believe the ex-Giants win and the Cuban Giants say, that's it. I'm not playing you no more. <laughs> so they go almost a decade without playing each other anymore. Let's fast forward real quick. I noticed uh, well, now, recently. Now, you now, t- can, can I can I inter- can I interject yeah. something though? Um, yeah, the, the, the part the part I want to interject is that um, you, you we keep mentioning all these teams that teams that go by the name Giants, right? And and the reason they're going by the name Giants. It's because the name Giant was an identifying factor that let you know the teams are going to be black. And actually, black teams had the name Giants before the New York Giants had it. And so this is a way in the era where there's no, photo, where there's no photographs in the newspapers. Uh, this is a way that uh, you can identify who is playing. So if it was a Giants, you're almost guaranteed to know it's a black team. And let us not stop there. The reason why they called themselves Cuban. Is that not true? Almost for the same reasons, to make uh, these games a little bit more uh, agreeable to a white audience. So they would lie and call themselves Cuban. Well, that's right or wrong. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. Uh, a Cuban, a, a black Cuban was more accepted than a black man who was born in America. Can you imagine that? Uh, yeah, I can't imagine that. That's why I like to put in that dagger in MLB side and twisting it a little bit from time to time. Uh, so the Cuban ex-Giants, let's fast forward a little bit. You, you, you tweeted very recently about the Cuban ex-Giants trip to Cuba. The initial trip took place, I believe, in uh, 1900. 
if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that, that was Lamar taking his team over. Right. Now, another yep. player in this is uh, Abel Linares, and he's from Cuba. Yes. And we have to put this into the perspective of Cuba's fight for freedom from Spain. And America is somewhat involved, but once the smoke what? clears, Abel Linares brings his uh, all-star team to America and strikes up an alliance with Mr. Lamar insofar as uh, promoting and booking. And it becomes a very profitable and mutual relationship because, in turn, Linares uh, helps Lamar enter Cuba. That is correct. Another great relationship that pioneered actually – when, when you know, later players who came from Cuba, it all started with those gentlemen there that you're talking about. Uh, yeah, that was a great relationship. Uh, and, and, and you know, to me, that we don't talk about this period as much and what it meant to the black ball player because, you know, by the time you get down there, black players are being featured on baseball cards that are in, in tobacco and things like that, something that was completely unheard of in America was happening for black players in Cuba. They were stars. Certainly. And they never heard, well, I shouldn't say never, never is too definitive a word, but they didn't have to deal with any of the stuff they dealt with here in their own country. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I'm good thing you to say never because yeah, they had a different brand of uh, prejudice there. It wasn't quite the same, you know, segregation that they faced here in America. But um, yeah, right. I've, I've seen ball players who who can tell you some things, and they did uh, in their articles. But they certainly were far more accepted in in that country than they were in the country of their birth. More events that will not enter the baseball record, and we're staying with the Cuban ex Giants just to round out the conversation. First of all, I would like. Again, Rube Foster, he plays for the Cuban ex-Giants in 1903 against the Philadelphia Giants. And the following season, he jumps over to the Philadelphia Giants against the Cuban ex-Giants. That's an interesting time in, uh, time in history. Any recollections? I shouldn't say recollections, but any observation as to that uh, series of events? Yeah, the, it, once again, it's, it comes down to finances. Remember, there's no league, so you couldn't stop a player from moving. But if, if they felt like, you know, they weren't getting enough money, then they would get a higher offer from maybe, you know, in Will Foster's case, he got a, a, a higher bonus from Walter Schlichter. And even Grand Home Run Johnson jumped over with him, too, uh, Bill Monroe, who at one time played with the Cuban ex-Giants, he was, he was there with the uh, Philadelphia Giants. And so they went, they followed the money. And, and, and a good example of that, Rube Foster, when he came to Chicago, came back to Chicago in 1907, he was offered a contract higher than any black player had ever received in baseball. So uh, money, money ruled in the era of independent play. Without a doubt. Uh, here's, here's another one, Cuban ex-Giants, something else that won't be in the record. In 1903, Dan McClellan throws the first perfect game in Negro baseball history. Uh, he whitewashed the Penn Park Athletic Club of York in Pennsylvania, five to nothing. Okay, this is an athletic club, probably semi-pro. Nevertheless, you know, it's credited by histories and, and fan and things that, you know, people of that nature is the first perfect game, but MLB isn't going to recognize this, are they? No, no, they they won't recognize that one because it was, you know, pre nineteen twenty, so they're not part of a league. But Dan Quell, McQuellen, great left-handed pitcher, might have been one of the finest left-handed pitchers in baseball. He was right up there with uh, with uh, Rube Waddell and those guys as well as a great lefty at that time. But he doesn't get the publicity. And, of course, I document that in 1905, Rue Foster, Dan McQuillan, and the Bowman on the same team all win 30 games. And you can read my book, The 1905 Philadelphia Giants, and it will tell you who he beat that year. So a great left-handed pitcher. We don't know enough about him because those statistics won't be there for him. Now, you did bring one interesting question. Um, 
in 19, um, let's say 1933, I think there was only one no-hitter thrown in the major leagues, and that was uh, uh, Daffy Dean, 1933. And I could be be mistaken, could be 34, but definitely (laughs) the year Daffy Dean threw his no-hitter was the only one in the major leagues. But Satchel Page also threw a no-hitter that year in Negro League Baseball. So probably that one will appear now where it didn't appear before. Speaking of which, Bob Feller used to be credited, credited with throwing the only opening day no-hitter. Now he will be joined by Leon Day in 1946. That's another <laughs> This is good stuff, isn't it? It that is. is true. Uh, very quickly, is... maybe you can answer this question for me because I'm I'm currently in the middle of writing about the Cuban ex-Giants, and I'm only up to 1903. They last 10 years, a wildly successful 10 years. Why did they fold after uh, 1906? Now, this was, now, who was it, the Cuban ex-Giants? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not exactly sure. I, I get the feeling that uh, – you know, with the players jumping and moving around, I get the feeling that he just ran out of gas. And uh, because, you know, every year you put these great teams together and then and then with a short period, you know, other people would start luring the players away. I know he lost uh, Winston to the Leland Giants. He jumps out to Chicago. And I think he just got tired of that and uh, decided to get out of the game altogether. Um, um and so, yeah, uh, that happened quite frequently as well. And, and, and you just made me think about another thing. You know, when I was growing up, Don Lawson pitched the no-hitter in the World Series, uh, the first World Series, no, no-hitter. no Well, there's a guy in the, the Negro National League who pitched a uh, no-hitter in the World Series, I think, believe it was 1928. So that record is about to get matched as well. Bill, we mentioned a lot of people. Uh, by the way, folks, you're listening to Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Uh, Sam was kind enough to hand the batons off to me this evening. Uh, he got caught up at work. I have a question for you, Bill. Hey, obviously, I'm I'm so consumed by the pre-1920s era. Who do you feel? What player? What single player do you feel uh, will not – the biggest, most prominent player that will not be recognized by MLB's actions? I would say one of them is going to be uh, George Wilson, a pitcher who played with the Page Fence Giants in the 1890s, uh, plays to uh, around 1907, a lefty, outstanding pitcher, out of Palmyra, Michigan, uh, Grant Home Run Johnson, who actually, believe it or not, hit over 60 home runs with the dead ball era in 1990. Excuse me, 1894. Uh, but he doesn't, you know, he does. He's he's too old by the time the league organized in 1920. Uh, you have great players like Walter Ball, Walter Ball, who goes back to the turn of the century. And about anybody who played pre-1920 won't appear in those records. And one of my favorite ball players, uh, Bill Monroe, he was like uh, – he, he, was, he was the – one of the greatest all-around players of that period, Bill Monroe. And uh, Bill Monroe, none of his information will be there because he died in 1914, 1915. So, and, and, and we're just really touching, touching – the top. So these, we're not talking, we're, we're talking about the icing on the cake, not even the cake. So there's a lot of good ball players there that will not get talked about in this move that they feel like uh, we're going to make the Negro League major leagues. There's a lot of guys that are going to get left out simply by when they were born. And, and you mentioned the Page Fence Giants. That's a team that should be recognized. Uh, Saul White and his relationship with the team, and his history, and his book. Oh, uh, you know, these are things I, I, I fear 
will be overlooked. I fear that they will pat themselves on the back and say, hey, look what we did. But really, the true narrative, the majority of the narrative, I, I, I feel, will, will not be uh, proper, properly acknowledged. And, and that's my apprehension about all this. Uh, so, Phil, I, I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough all for your right. time today. I, I, would, I would render these last minutes uh, to you, whatever's on your mind. Uh, take it away, Phil. Well, uh, you know, you've provoked some some interesting thoughts. You know, some things I hadn't thought about, and and uh, thinking about the players who are actually left out. So I guess that's the new segregation now. Is the players who who played before 1920 don't get any new recognition. The guys afterwards get the recognition. That's something to think about. So uh, it's you know uh, you've introduced a lot of thoughts and. And I think that people haven't taken into consideration uh, what changes in the historic record that, you know, if you're my age, we grew up with. And uh, looking at the old, uh, uh, what we used to call it, the uh, Macmillan Baseball Encyclopedia. Out there, I got five of those things on my shelf and uh, down there. But things are changing, and uh, I guess that we're going to have to just uh, see how this plays out and uh, – I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people are going to be chiming in uh, all the way until something is introduced that we can really talk about that, you know, that we can visually see. But right now, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what all of this means, but I don't I know that it's going to be interesting regardless of how they play it. So I thank you for uh, having me on today. I'm still trying to digest all of this. And I, I can see you are too. So, but thank you for having me on to talk about it. Oh, thank you for ha- you know, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. You're a Kansas City native. I know you're in contact with Mr. Kendrick. Please give him our regards here from New York. Uh, we love everything he's doing. We love the Negro League Museum, and I personally can't wait to get out there. Uh, that's right. uh, top, of my, top of my list when all this pandemic uh, clears up and. You know, we can freely travel the countryside again. That's where I'm headed, man. <laughs> well, you get you you get out here. The barbecue's on me. All right. You got it. I'm holding you to that. So once <laughs> again, this is Phil. Not done yet. This is Phil Dixon. You can get him at Negro League Man, historian, author, and as far as I'm concerned, one of the primary Negro League's authorities out there. Thank you again. Please, one last plug. What are you doing? It. What are you doing? Where are you doing it? Where can we find it? Yeah, uh, well, you know, I've got a new uh, webpage that I launched, which is uh, NLB, like Negro League Baseball. So it's NLBalive.com. You can check me there. And, of course, you just mentioned the at Negro League Man on Twitter. And uh, you can go in and also find me at uh, Phil S. Dixon, Negro League author on Facebook. And uh, those are some good ways to catch me right now since we can't go out and do the things we used to do, but those are some good places. Thank you again, sir. On behalf of Sam Maxwell and the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, I'm Michael LaCollin. I thank everyone for listening. I thank you, Phil. Uh, Baseball, it's a celebration. That's all I can say. I have a big smile on my face. Thank you again, Phil. All right. You have a nice day now. Good evening, folks. Thank you for listening. Good night.